You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Nikita, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Torso, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Jack, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Lost Again, The Navigator, Axios, Pinches, The Knight of Dampier, Wit, Pablo, Willie P, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And, of course, our quartermasters, James, Hunter, and Birdsong. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Before we get started today, I'd like to mention a thing that's happening right now, all around the world. It's, uh, well, take a listen. She had not been two weeks from shore, and then on her our eight-wheel bore, the captain called all hands and swore it take that whale and tow. Soon may the weatherman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Before the boat had had the water, the whale's tail came up and caught her. And to the side, her pinned and fought her when she died down low. Soon may the weatherman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, one sea shanty, at least, has gone viral. It's all over the internet. I think it started on TikTok, which I can only assume is some kind of platform based around the crocodile that chased after Captain Hook in Peter Pan. But that's... I think it's cool. Partly because I just like sea shanties. Even though most of the sea shanties that we know come from the late 18th and 19th centuries, after the Golden Age of Piracy... They're still just fun. But to me, in this particular trend, I see something more in it. It's people from all over the world in a time when a lot of people feel isolated, when a lot of people are struggling, sometimes just to get from day to day, and all of these thousands of people come together to share a song. And if you haven't seen any of this, go check it out. There's something moving about seeing so many people from so many different backgrounds and parts of the world come together in this one little way. And I think it's appropriate that a sea shanty would do so. You know, sea shanties, not unlike the songs sung by chain gangs, breaking rocks, or the spirituals or devotionals sung by enslaved peoples all throughout history, well, they're something of an anthem for the dispossessed. 
a way for people to alleviate the rigors of a hard day, to brighten a dreary day-to-day struggle. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe, you know, maybe people just think they're fun. Maybe I'm projecting my own opinions or thoughts or feelings onto the matter. But there is a certain tension in the world right now. It's got all manner of different causes, but I think everybody kind of shares that sensation. And something about this trend, you know, it's a meme, it's going to last a week, like everything else online, but something about it feels significant. And perhaps I only feel that way because it does serve as a reasonable introduction to our story today, or at least to the players in our story today. Because those people in question, many of them were very much the dispossessed. Others were not at all. Some of them were on an upward trajectory of mobility, socially and economically. But that was not going to last. All of that is going to change. This is episode 197, The Charles II. The opening passage of A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson, after the introduction, reads as follows. Quote, None of these bold adventurers were ever so much talked of, for a while, as Henry Avery. He was looked upon to be a person of great consequence. He was represented in Europe as one that had raised himself to the dignity of a king, and was likely to be the founder of a new monarchy, having, as it was said, taken immense riches and married the great Mughal's daughter, who was taken in an Indian ship which fell into his hands, and that he had by her many children, living in great royalty and state, that he had built forts, erected magazines, and was master of a stout squadron of ships, manned with able and desperate fellows of all nations." that he gave commissions out in his own name to the captains of his ships and the commanders of his forts, and was acknowledged by them as their prince. That is all 100% true. Not the body of it, none of that about a fortress or a battalion of ships or issuing commissions even. That's all nonsense. Certainly, Every was not a king. What makes it 100% true is how that passage begins. Captain Johnson tells us that Avery, as he calls him, was represented in Europe as all of those things. And that is true. Henry Avery's story, not what really happened, but the myth of Henry Avery, that story was grabbed with both hands by all of the pamphleteers and publishers and playwrights in London. They took it and they ran with it, and they embellished it. You might notice that many of the things ascribed to Henry Avery were in fact done, more or less, by Adam Baldrige. But that story was important to the English-speaking world, in part because Henry Avery was going to become, due to the magnitude of his crimes, he was going to become one of the few people, recognizable in name at least, to everyone in the English world. Everyone from Boston to Bermuda to the Bahamas, all the way to the East Indies, to India, and later on Australia. That's the kind of name recognition that 
in most times was only granted to the monarch, the king or queen, maybe some of the top members of their council, but virtually no one else. When Henry Every made the splash that he did, despite the reality of what he may or may not have done, he became something of a folk hero, almost a modern-day maritime Robin Hood. But while the story of Robin Hood was indicative of some of the tensions in the world at the time, Henry Every was going to become a showpiece for everything that was on the minds of everyone in the world at that time. In a very real way, the story, the mythology of Henry Every, shows us something about the birth of the modern world. Remember, we're just a couple of years past the glorious revolution here, the transition into a constitutional monarchy. England was busy reforging their economy into a capitalist powerhouse. It was going to change the world in only a few short years. Things like literacy and education and social mobility, well, those were the order of the day. In the popular imagination, Henry Every became something of a personification of all of those ideas, all of those transitions. And I know that's a big claim, and Henry Every was not the personification of all of those ideas and transitions. To be fair to Captain Johnson here, he does follow his passage with an acknowledgement that, quote, These are all false rumors, improved by the credulity of some and the humor of others who love to tell strange things. End quote. But that's neither here nor there. Because Henry Every is not yet a folk hero who's gripped the mind of the entire English-speaking world. As of yet, he is a mostly anonymous former Navy man. When we left off, the joint stock company known as Spanish Expedition Shipping was preparing a fleet of four ships for their Spanish expedition. That was a mission to sell guns to the Spanish West Indies. It was all for the war effort, though, and almost no profit. The profit on the voyage was going to come from treasure hunting. John and James Hublon, two of the Hublon brothers, the two who ran Spanish expedition shipping and founded the Bank of England, really needed their new company to turn a profit. Their shareholders included most of London's most illustrious rich and famous. That includes William and Mary, King and Queen of England, Lords of the Admiralty, members of the board of directors of the East India Company, we're talking about men and women who were in every way the social betters of the Hublon brothers. But not the financial betters of the Hublon brothers. Despite their ancient names and illustrious titles, the aristocracy found themselves more and more forced to rely on this... Well, I was going to say middle class, but that's not accurate. They were a financial elite but they were not noble. And in much of the world, the political leadership, the landed nobility, the aristocracy, they resisted this kind of thing with every ounce of repression available to them. I mean, look at France. They had an absolute monarchy and pushed to make it even more absolute. This naturally led to a financial devastation. And even when they were finally forced to allow in some of that financial elite... What was called the sword nobility ensured that many of their ancient prerogatives would be protected from these nouveaux riches. It was a deeply flawed system, 
a system that eventually led to the French Revolution, and the terror, and the guillotine. England, on the other hand, had a bloodless revolution. They invited political and social and financial progress into their kingdom, and their monarchs did not get their heads cut off, still a distinction that is relatively unique in the European experience. Now, Spanish expedition shipping had four ships in the fleet. There was Seventh Sun, that small pink intended for traversing coral reefs and hunting treasure. Then there was a pair of frigates, Dove and James. And finally, there was the Charles II, under construction as we speak. It would be difficult to overstate just what an amazingly perfect ship Charles II would make if, hypothetically speaking, she were ever to be captured by pirates. James Hublon, the man who commissioned the construction of Charles II, was immensely proud of his ship. He called her, quote, a great merchantman, a stout frigate of forty guns, and an extraordinary sailor. End quote. And the forty guns were important. That's why Hublon built her in the first place. He was particularly worried about the French. However, as we discussed last time, the English fought a series of battles that did a pretty good job cleaning out the French presence in the North Atlantic. However, I do want to clear something up. I told you last time that the immediate aftermath of that series of battles would provide a perfect opportunity for the Spanish expedition to set out. And that's true, it would, but that's not when they set out. Charles II was still under construction, and they would not leave port for another several months. But more important than even the guns on the Charles II was her speed. Hublon called her an extraordinary sailor, and she was. She was amazingly fast. For a ship that carried forty guns and could carry more than a hundred men and a good amount of cargo, the Charles was faster than almost any other ship of her class. And in this story, she's going to prove that time and time again. But while Charles II was still under construction, at the East London dockyards, James Hublon began the job of recruiting for his expedition. And this was nothing like a pirate operation would recruit. There was no setting up shop in a local tavern or nailing their code to the door. And it was nothing like naval recruiting. There was no question of impressment on this voyage. The Spanish expedition did not have to search out sailors to man their ships. They were offering the best job out there for any seafaring person in the English-speaking world. The pay alone was going to be better than any other wage a regular sailor could expect on any other voyage, naval or private. Stephen Johnson tells us in Enemy of All Mankind, quote, one high-ranking sailor on the Dove was offered four pounds, ten shillings per month, with a total package of eighty-two pounds, roughly the equivalent of twenty thousand dollars in today's currency, for the entire voyage. End quote. But of course this was an officer's salary. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. William Dampier the second mate on board the Dove, was not the high-ranking officer in question, but it's entirely possible that his wage was commensurate to that 82 pounds. The regular crewman would have been offered less, naturally, but still better pay than any other merchant voyage, and way better pay than the Navy. And there was even talk of a bonus here. When they finally salvaged whatever treasure they happened to stumble upon, they would receive a portion of it. Not equal shares or anything, nothing so egalitarian. The plunder was to serve as operating capital for Spanish expedition shipping, but they would receive a bonus. More important, perhaps, were their benefits. First of all, every sailor's family was going to be paid a stipend every week that their family member was away on the voyage. Not a lot of money, but enough to live on while their husbands or fathers or sons were out of the country. And then there was the food. I mean, we've talked before about how terrible rations could be on a Navy vessel. Hardtack, salted beef, rancid butter, old, stale water, sometimes undrinkable. And that was on a Navy ship. Merchant ships oftentimes were worse. This voyage, though, was going to offer much better fare. Fresh vegetables and bread for the first two weeks. Decent wine was to be brought. They would have to dilute it, but, you know, still not bad. And they would have live animals for the slaughter there. And then there's the workload. All of the ships on the Spanish expedition were recruiting very large crews for their ships. You might remember from William Phipps' expedition that they just didn't have enough men to properly dive the wreck of La Nuestra Señora. It was a common problem on salvaging missions, and this cruise aimed to satisfy that issue— They had much larger crews than were needed simply to sail across the ocean. This was very exciting news for anyone that managed to secure a position on the Spanish expedition. Light work, excellent pay, good food, a stipend for the family. It was a cush job. But of course, that's all the point. This voyage intended to recruit only the very best men that England had to offer here. They weren't scouring the docks for the dregs of London. They were skimming the cream off the top. And let's start there, at the top, I mean, at the Admiral of the Fleet. Now, I don't know what the Admiral's name was. I do know that he was Scottish, but that he sailed under Spanish colors for a number of years. The Spanish called him Don Arturo O'Byrne. There are other sources that call him Sir Arthur O'Bourne, I'm going to call him Admiral O'Brien, Arthur O'Brien. The Admiral 
was a Jacobite. He was a Scotsman who had sailed under Spanish colors before England and Spain were allied in the Nine Years' War. Admiral O'Brien was not in good standing with the royal authorities under William and Mary. It's unclear exactly how he got hired for the job in the first place, but this was the Spanish expedition. It was an English venture, but now that England and Spain were allied during the Nine Years' War, the Spanish had a stake in it as well. And Admiral O'Brien, a British citizen, had clout in the Spanish-speaking world. There was very likely some pressure from the Spanish government to put him in a position of command. This operation was important to them and the war effort. They needed those guns, and... Well, they may have needed a whole lot more than just guns, which may be why they wanted to put a Scottish Jacobite who had sailed under Spanish colors in command. We'll get to that later on, though. The point is... O'Brien might have been Spain's doing. But the flag captain, captain of the flagship Charles II, was a much better fit. His name was John Strong. Now, Strong was a former privateer, and here that's not some kind of secret code for pirate. John Strong had a real and valid commission during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. He sailed with distinction to the war's end, at which point he went back to a civilian life. That's what privateers are supposed to do. But he did serve as a privateer in the West Indies, and he did, in his time there, meet and do business with a lot of other privateers with fewer scruples. He knew their haunts and their havens. He knew Tortuga and Port Royal and Nassau. And he knew the Spanish... That's why, back in 1687, William Phipps chose John Strong to serve as first mate on his ship when they went to go seek La Nuestra Señora. John Strong was one of the men who ferried all of that Spanish silver back to London so that the Hublon brothers could establish the Bank of England. Now, Strong was arrested upon his return to London under suspicion of embezzling some of that Spanish silver, but he was released without ever going to trial. More recently, John Strong, on another voyage, had rediscovered and named, and claimed for England, the Falkland Islands. For all intents and purposes, John Strong was the perfect candidate to lead the Spanish expedition. And in a way he did. Admiral Arthur O'Brien was an uninspiring alcoholic Jacobite. He was not popular with the men. But John Strong was. Those were the first two men that James Hublon signed up for the Spanish expedition. And it wasn't a happy partnership. The details here are relatively scant, but they did argue about nearly everything, especially early on during the hiring process. When it came to the captains of the voyage, the brothers who blown had a lot of say in the matter. For example, John Knight, the captain of the Dove, the captain under whom William Dampier would serve. Knight was a, quote, sober, diligent, and knowing man, end quote, which is representative of all of the captains chosen by the Hublon brothers. They were an excellent lot, except 
for Admiral O'Brien. If you'd like to go ahead and picture Admiral O'Brien with a scar on his cheek and an eye patch and a mustache that he's very fond of twirling mischievously, you'd have the picture that most of the sources paint him as. But that group of five men, Admiral O'Brien and the four captains, were to decide on all of the other officers, and that's where the tension began to arise, mostly between Admiral O'Brien and Captain Strong. Admiral O'Brien kept pushing for captains that were also twirling their mustaches. Maybe they had a, a German accent or even a Russian accent, you know, real villainous types. While John Strong chose, well, strong candidates. You know, good, God-fearing, patriotic Englishmen, that kind of thing. But it was John Strong that won out more often than not. Now, we don't know the order in which those officers were chosen, but we could assume that the first mate of the flagship, Charles II, was pretty high on the list, maybe at the very top. They chose a former master's mate in the Royal Navy named Henry Every. Let's talk connections for just a second, beginning with Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough. We all know who Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough is. We all know of his laundry list of naval victories. He's been a common theme all throughout this show, particularly his voyage on Algiers when he put down the Barbary pirates for almost a generation and when he sailed with William Phipps on his hunt for La Nuestra Senora. When we discussed both of those ventures, I mentioned the possibility that Henry Every was among the sailors on board. I'm going to let E.T. Fox describe the web of connections from his exceptional book, King of the Pirates. Fox writes, quote, John Strong, as captain of the flagship, would have had some say in the appointment of his subordinate officers. There is no proof that Strong knew Every, and since no complete crew lists from Phipps' expeditions exist, it is impossible to say whether or not Every sailed on them. However, a possible string of patronage can be established into which Every fits nicely. In 1679, it was Sir John Narborough who ordered the promotion of Francis Wheeler from second to first lieutenant of HMS Rupert. It was the same Narborough who was in nominal command of Phipps' second expedition to the Concepcion. Narborough died in 1688 during that expedition, but it was shortly after the return of Strong and his crew to England that Every secured a post as midshipman under Wheeler. It remains nothing more than speculation, but it is entirely possible, and not at all unlikely, that Every had sailed under John Strong on the second expedition, and possibly the first as well, to the Concepcion, and used his connection with Sir John Narborough to gain employment under that officer's former protege, Sir Francis Wheeler, then used the contact with John Strong, made at the same time, to obtain the post of his chief mate in 1693. End quote. All of that seems eminently likely, but more than that, it suggests to me that Henry Every might have left the Royal Navy specifically to take this particular job. After their defeat at Beachy Head, it would have proved an excellent opportunity for him. Of course, you don't just get to leave the Royal Navy on a whim. They have contracts and terms of service. Now, Every's term may have just been up, 
after Beachy Head, but if not, it's possible that he had to call in some favors from his commanding officers. Or maybe, conversely, he was in fact recommended for the post by someone like Francis Wheeler. Henry Every earned a commendation for his service at the Battle of Beachy Head. He served with a notable distinction. It's entirely possible that he was granted leave for the Spanish expedition. Financially, and socially, this would all have been a huge boon for Henry Every. After the voyage was done, he could buy a modest house. He could get married, maybe start a family. And he would have served as first mate on a state-of-the-art flagship. That's a position of real command on one of the best ships in England. Henry Every would take everything that he learned from his time on board Charles II into a new command position in the Royal Navy, or maybe the East India Company. The Spanish expedition was a real opportunity for Henry Every to advance. Henry Every was certainly no gutter urchin. He came from a good family, he got an education, but for a boy from the West Country, he never would have had the opportunity to rub elbows with the kind of people that, given this opportunity, he would get to meet, he would get to work with, perhaps even one day, command. This was a big deal, but not just for Henry Every. It was a possibility for advancement for everyone involved. Obviously the officers, but even the regular crewmen were going to benefit enormously. And the Spanish expedition recruited all of those men with just as much gusto. To bring in the best of the best, they did a couple of separate things, beyond the excellent pay, good benefits, and fine foods. First, the Spanish expedition was going to offer exemptions from impressment for everyone that was on the crew. In a time of war in seaside towns, men were in constant and imminent and very real fear of a government-mandated kidnapping in the form of the press gang. Everyone wanted to avoid that fate. Everyone wanted that exemption. Therefore, everyone threw their name into the hat for the Spanish expedition, and it gave them a huge pool of applicants from which to draw, from which to choose the best possible sailors with the best possible resumes. But beyond that, they wanted some navy men. Henry Every was good, but some men with real grit that had served in the Royal Navy and knew their way around a battle. To that end, Admiral O'Brien talked to the Commission for Sick and Wounded Sailors. Now that's exactly what it sounds like. Men who were either injured in the line of duty or afflicted by diseases like scurvy or malaria or yellow fever, they were all sent to naval hospitals to recover under the Commission for Sick and Wounded Sailors. There, they handed out wooden peg legs and strapped on eye patches and gave every man who needed one a hook hand. And once all of these rough-looking sailors were fit enough to sail, they were put back into the pool of candidates for military service. But those men weren't immediately sent out to serve. There were ships that were busy sailing across the Indian Ocean or serving in the West Indies, and it would take time for them to return to London to gather those sailors from the Commission for Sick and Wounded Sailors. But the Spanish expedition, who had backers as high up as the King and Queen and the Lord High Admiral, they were able to poach from that pool as well. 
Now, the records we have aren't detailed enough to tell us how each and every man on board the Spanish expedition was recruited, but we can take some guesses. The second mates of the flagship, the men right underneath Henry Every, were David Cray and Joseph Gravitt, and they were both Navy men. Now, they could have been recruited to the fleet in the same manner that Every had been, or they could have been those peg-legged, hook-handed, eye-patch-wearing scallywags recruited from a Navy hospital. There's another man who would serve as the steward on board the James, who's more likely to have been sent over by the Commission for Sick and Wounded Sailors. His name was William May, and he was fifty years old. By his own account, quote, a very sickly man who served his king and country for thirty years. End quote. Now, we need to be careful not to confuse this William May with the pirate captain who was also called William May, or William Mason, the same who sailed with Captain Kidd. And from here on out, just to be clear, I'm going to call that pirate captain William Mason, and this 50-year-old will be William May. Now, while most of the crew were in their 20s and 30s, there were a few other men of that age group among the four crews of the Spanish expedition, in their 40s and into their 50s. But on the other end of the spectrum, there were a bunch of teenagers. There was the 14-year-old Philip Middleton, a 17-year-old boy named John Sparks, and finally, the 18-year-old William Bishop. Those fresh-faced young lads were certainly not recruited out of a naval hospital. For most of them, it was probably their first cruise ever. And in the case of William Bishop, well, the circumstances surrounding William Bishop and his position on the crew, and how he came into it, they're going to be a very major question in just a few years' time. That question is going to grip the English-speaking world in a very real way. William Bishop was a fresh-faced young man, handsome and charming, with an easy smile and a friendly laugh. He was not a hardened killer of men, at least in the eyes of the people of England, and yet... It's exactly that that he will be accused of. Some of those names that we just mentioned, along with a dozen or so other names, all of whom we are going to get to know, but they're all going to be the subject of intense public scrutiny, of debate and of press coverage. And that debate is going to divide public opinion deeply. William Bishop, in particular, is going to capture the public mind, because while Every was, depending on your politics, either the most dastardly villain that has ever sailed the seven seas, or a folk hero who is pushing for you to have greater rights and economic freedom, William Bishop is right there. Good-looking young man. Seems like he's got a bright future ahead of him. But despite all that, the authorities are going to hang him. And I think that's a good place to leave it today. Next time we're going to travel across the Atlantic Ocean, not with Henry Every, but instead we're going to visit New York and Newport, Rhode Island with Captain Thomas Two. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. 
Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has given us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, you all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.